Thank you so much for having me this morning. It is a, a true joy to be here with you. Of course, uh, Caleb gave you the backstory. It seems like we've known each other so much longer than we actually have. Uh, it's really just been over a year now. Uh, but when Caleb and I met, it was just an instant connection. And it was one of those moments where I, I really felt like, wow, here's a guy that really thinks like me, <laughs> which can be scary. Um, but, and, and just to see, here's a guy who really has the same heart for North Dakota that I do. Um, because, of course, as he mentioned, I'm over in Michigan. So when I tell people that uh, I want to go to North Dakota to plant a church, they're like, why would you go to North Dakota? And I just look back at them and I go, why wouldn't you want to go to North Dakota? Uh, there are um, things that God is doing in this state um, that I'm excited about, that Caleb is excited about. And, and so many, I can look back even in the last several years especially and just see all these providential relationships that have been formed that are really serving to do something wonderful uh, in Castleton. Um, of course, there are, as he mentioned, a number of people who are going to be part of our church plant that are here this morning. Um, we've got the Loy family over here, and, and of course, you guys know Daryl and Colleen. Just an amazing thing. I mean, three, four months ago now, I gave Daryl a call, and I said, hey, I don't know you, you don't know me, but uh, would you ever be interested in planting a church in Castleton? <laughs> And little did I know that they'd been praying for it for six years, fervently for the last two. And then it's just been a whirlwind from there, hasn't it? So it's a joy to be here, uh, especially on such good terms here. I have a lot of terrifying memories of Jamestown. I grew up on, uh, an hour and a half northwest of here, and my biggest speeding tickets came between Jamestown and Carrington. It is the, the entire strip's just, it's a speed trap. And, and I won't even ask you to raise your hand if you've gotten a ticket there, because I'm, I'm afraid of how many would come up. If you haven't gotten a ticket there, the Lord is with you. And you might be more law-abiding than I am, too. So thank you for having me. Uh, it is a joy to come, and especially to, to preach on such a glorious text, so rich in the gospel, where we get to be reminded of God's kindness to us once again, and really of that thing which makes you and I family, that thing that makes it feel like when I come into this place that these aren't strangers, these are people that share a common heartbeat together. So with that said, would you turn open God's word to 1 Corinthians where we will spend our time in chapter two looking at verses six through 16. Starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, 
nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." The gospel is amazing. I got to see that on display last night when we even gathered as a church planting team for the first time. And we just went around the circle and one by one we had all of these people who are coming together share about how God had saved them. And of course, every person who shared had a unique component to their story. They heard the gospel in a different place than the other through a different person than the other, through di different circumstances than the other, and yet there was a, a common theme between all of them, which was this, that they were saved through the same message, and that this message hit them in a powerful way because of the same reason, because the Holy Spirit worked in their life. I mean, you, you, you had so many people that shared the common story. They said, you know, I grew up in the church. Everything was very rote tradition for me. I would come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and I went through the motions. You had people that had even served on the committees. You had even people who had been baptized. You had one that had even said, I lied at my baptism as a junior. I told them what they wanted to hear, but I knew that I was dead. I knew it was all a show. And yet one day, though he had lied about it in his own heart, God would confront him, and the power of the gospel would be lit up in his life. And now he's a full-fledgling evangelist. <laughs> He actually is a dear friend of mine that I've known, and I got to see him come to Christ just, just after. I got, to see, I got to know him just after he came to Christ. Well, as you are aware, Paul here is dealing with a church that though they have experienced that same thing that I just spoke about, they have come to a place in which they need to be reminded about this amazing gospel that they have believed in. It's amazing how quick we are to forget the beauty, the wonder of this gospel that we have been given. And for the Corinthians, they came to a place in which they were starting to revert back to old ways of thinking. 
Of course, being in Corinth, they were in a place that was dominated very much by Greek thinking. And it would have been a place in which people were always on the lookout for something new, some new piece of knowledge. It would have been a place where traveling teachers and preachers would have come through and and would have been trying to win them to a new religion on a regular basis. It was a place in which people would pride themselves on having new knowledge and more wisdom. And here the church, even though they were saved by the same message of the gospel, that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, yet they were starting to think, you know, really what we need in this church we need, we need great rhetoric. We need great preachers. We need great leaders. And of course, there was all sorts of division that was taking place within the church itself. The main point of really the first four chapters of this book is found in verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, what does he wanted to do in this church? He says, you need to understand and have a common identity in Christ and in the gospel because you've clearly forgotten it. What I mean in verse 12, he says this, says that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. I am, they were essentially coming to that place of saying, I am who I am because this guy, how great he was. I tell you what, nobody could teach like he could. Nobody was winsome like he was. And of course, the next person would say, well, I beg to differ. Because this guy, he's the guy that disciples me. And they were becoming more more identified by the person who discipled them than by the gospel that they believed in. And so what does Paul do? He goes back to remind them, listen, you're missing it. You weren't saved by this person or that person. You were saved by this message. You were saved by the word of the cross. You were saved by this message that is complete idiocy and lunacy to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't move beyond the gospel. Don't go that direction. Don't don't revert back to thinking that there's something After this, that is better. Don't think to yourself that there's something more powerful or more wise than this. This is it. And so what does he do in in the first section here after he says, for the word is folly to those who are perishing? He talks about how this foolish message brings to nothing the wisdom of this world. And then he has them think about what you guys looked at last week, which is their calling. Remember remember what happened when you heard the gospel? Remember who you were when you heard the gospel? Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose to save you through this message, and your election in Christ became evident because of how you received this message when nobody, humanly speaking, would receive this message. Well, he continues in this same vein of thinking where he wants to do everything to build the Corinthians' hope and our hope in this 
powerful and wise message of the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at two ways that God proves his wisdom and power in the gospel. So if you're a note taker, those are, those are our two points this morning. Two ways that God proves his wisdom and power in the gospel, just in case you are like the Corinthians or you are even like myself, in which you have a tendency to forget the amazing power and display of God's majesty in the gospel. First, in our text this morning, God proves his wisdom and power in the gospel by how he prevents people from understanding its message. He proves his wisdom and power in the gospel by how he prevents people from understanding its message. We see that in verses 6 through 8. Look in your Bibles there at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So fascinating. You know, if we were to devise a message that people would enter into a right relationship with God, it wouldn't be like this. We would make it, we would make it complicated, wouldn't we? We would make it so that either the, the most powerful and strong were able to attain to it, or we would make it so that only the most intelligent were able to get to it. And here's what God does. He actually makes it so simple. He puts a message on the bottom self that's so basic and so simple that even a child can understand it. I mean, I, I could have one of my children come up here, my six-year-old or my nine-year-old, and they could tell you, the gospel. They could tell you that Jesus loves them, that he died on the cross for their sins. It's that basic. So simple, isn't it? You would think, well, if God wants to save a bunch of people, he's going to make it so that every person, no matter what, can understand it. Well, is it possible that God actually receives glory for maintaining certain mysteries? There's this profound mystery in the gospel. It is so basic. It is so simple. And yet, Comprehension is out of our reach apart from the supernatural work of God. I love how Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Our God is so majestic and so amazing, of course, that he gets to look at us striving so hard to know everything about this world and everything about him. And, and when we have given it all, he wants to leave us at the foot of his mountain going, gosh, there's so much. I can't even start to climb the mountain of your knowledge. Well, God delights. Even when the gospel is hidden, it's hidden to glorify God. The gospel makes sense to a child, but of course, the significance and the weight of that message is, as Paul says, secret and hidden wisdom of God. Paul loves to describe the gospel in terms of a mystery, but don't understand what Paul is saying. Uh, Paul didn't mean that the gospel is a difficult message to understand on a basic level. He just meant you'll never know the significant weight of this message apart from God. Well, who is it hidden from? Well, not from Christians. Paul says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. 
Paul, when he uses this word mature, didn't mean mature in the sense that these people had a deeper level of understanding, say, than other Christians. The word mature was just a way to say you understand it because you're Christians. And even though the Corinthians weren't thinking like mature Christians, even the basic knowledge that they had in that starting relationship with God, they are light years ahead of the world. Because compared to what the world knows and the way the world lives its life, they are mature. They have the Holy Spirit of God. They have the mind of Christ. Now, it should almost surprise us when Paul says that he imparts wisdom here. Because if you read what came before these verses, you realize that Paul has been very hard on wisdom. He has spoken about it almost exclusively in a negative sense. He pointed out that human wisdom is under God's judgment. He's pointed out that God will bring human wisdom to nothing. He's been very clear that his speech and his message were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But then he makes a positive statement. Guess what, guys? I'm giving you wisdom. I, I have true wisdom from God, and I'm giving to you. And his point is simple. The world's wisdom is no wisdom at all. It's complete foolishness. But there is a true wisdom in the gospel. Now, as you'll see as you get farther into Corinthians, it makes so much more sense that he calls it wisdom because wisdom even has this connotation that the message they've received isn't just a message that gets them into a relationship with God, but it's a message for everyday life in which there is practical significance. Which is why when you get into places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he reminds them, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, there's always practical implications for the gospel. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But of course, this wisdom, the world can't understand it. It is out of reach of their ability to find on their own. And why? Because this wisdom is different than the wisdom of this world. It's described in verse 6 as a wisdom not of this age. It's a wisdom of the ages. It's a timeless wisdom. It's not a wisdom that came from the rulers of this age. It stems from the ruler of the universe. It's also a wisdom that came before this age. God decreed it, it says, before the ages kind of reminds us of what Paul says in Ephesians 1, doesn't it? That blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Reminding us once again that this gospel was never a backup plan. This was a very well thought out and intentioned plan that God had before he had ever created the universe. Now, if you want proof that the world can't know it or that it's veiled to their eyes, then look no further than verse 8. None of the rulers understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then he gives us an incredible, he gives us an incredible example of how the wisdom of God is displayed, even at the very crucifixion of Christ, and how the people who were crucifying him couldn't even comprehend what they were doing. They didn't get it. 
It was veiled, and the Lord of glory was standing right before them. And could you have imagined what would have happened in that moment if they had really gotten a glimpse of the glory of God? Well, we, it, it doesn't take much to understand because when you think about Matthew 17 and the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain, what happens? They tremble. They're terrified. They are taken back by his glory. All they want to do is build an altar and worship, right? And yet, the rulers of this age were veiled to that glory. They didn't, what was it that they didn't understand? They didn't understand who stood before them. They called him a criminal. They called him a drunk. They called him a, a, a blasphemer. All they could see when they looked at Jesus was the carpenter clothes that he was wearing and his family ties. And even those that, of course, spent time around him, we know in John chapter 6, verse 42, it says that they said of him, is, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? You see, apart from the, the, the supernatural work of God opening your eyes, that's how, you'll ever, that's how you'll always ever see Jesus. Just a man who was born into a family, who was a carpenter by trade. He's a good teacher. He's a good moral philosopher. You might have all sorts of warm thoughts about him, but apart from God working in your life, you don't comprehend the divinity that lies within him, that he was both man, but God, very God. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that there's salvation in no one else but him, the Lord of glory, clearly a reference to his deity Salvation in no one else but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it's really profound when you think about it that, that at the very time, of course, that they had this veiling over their eyes in which they could not comprehend that God was standing in front of him, they were perfectly carrying out God's plan of salvation that they did exactly as God wanted them to do, exactly when God wanted them to do it. They didn't realize that even as they were crucifying him, that, that, that the crucifixion of Jesus would lead to the demise of the world's system. They didn't realize that this crucifixion would actually become a public de demonstration that man's wisdom is judged, and it is certainly doomed because God has triumphed over it. They were like Haman in the book of Esther who builds a gallow for another man and yet he himself was hung by it. If that isn't wise, I don't know what is on God's half. The gospel message comes with great irony. The greatest irony that we could know. It makes the strongest out to be the weakest. But as we see in verse 9, Something amazing is said about this message. He says, he makes a quote from Isaiah 64, verse 4, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, no heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love them. Now this might be interesting to you, but when you look carefully at verse 9, do you know what you see? You, you see a profound summary of the various ways that man attempts to arrive at the knowledge of God. 
The first way is through the objective, isn't it? Through looking at the stuff that's there in front of his face and reasoning. By using his own eyes and ears. It's a picture of the scientific method. That he observes laws, he creates hypotheses, he calculates and he experiments. We see the belief system of empiricism. That what we see, hear, touch and feel can lead us to the ultimate answers of our existence. And while we are thankful, of course, for the scientific method, it arrives completely bankrupt and short of being able to give you the answers and the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then you also see the second way that people attempt to arrive at the, the, the wisdom of God. It's through the subjective. It is through the heart of man imagining. And this approach defines meaning and purpose through the invisible, through one's own intellect, through one's own feelings, through one's own intuition. You can look at, again, different worldviews that would teach us these things, such as rationalism. Philosopher Rene Descartes is known for his statement, I think, therefore I am. Where the whole goal of philosophy and even rationalism is to come up with the answer of the one thing that holds everything else together that we have all of these disciplines and all of these areas of study, but what is it that brings them together in a unified whole? Descartes' hope was that he would doubt everything until he would keep digging down to a truth that couldn't be doubted. And of course, since he couldn't doubt his own existence, then that's the statement, I think, therefore I am. I know that I exist because I can't doubt that I'm a doubter. You can look at existentialism, where people spend a whole lifetime figuring things out, trying to make one blind leap after another, just to try some new experience, and through these various experiences that they would finally discover who they are. But again, all of these approaches, whether it's through the objective or the subjective, they can't lead you to an understanding of this glorious Christ. So then what can if it's completely veiled, if it's completely covered from our eyes, then what can make sense of it? Well, Paul gives us that. And this is our second point. God proves his wisdom and power in the gospel by how he permits people to understand it. Verses 10 through 16 reveal these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. There is only one way to understand the saving power of Jesus Christ, and it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Such a good reminder for us to have. You can present argument upon argument upon argument to somebody that you love. You can do all that you want to giving them the greatest defenses of the faith and reasons to hope in Christ till you are blue in the face. But apart from the Holy Spirit, your efforts will be useless. And I'm sure that if we were to go around asking the question, how many of you had all of the, the arguments... How many of you were intellectually convinced? There would be a few of you here that said, I ran out of objections, yet my heart was unchanged. Yes, I intellectually believe those things to be true, but to actually apply them to my life and to cultivate a, a conviction of my own sin, 
No argument could possibly have done that. I remember my friend Dave talking about how he was trying to witness to his friend, and, and he sat down, and they spent an entire day together going through all of the various arguments for why Jesus is the Christ and why he should believe in him. And at the end of the day, my friend Dave said to his friend, well, do you have any more objections? He goes, no, I believe everything you're saying. I just don't want to believe in Christ. Kind of a strange moment of honesty (laughs) right there. There's one philosopher, I forget who it was, but he was asked, he said, when you stand before God, when you die and you stand before God, and he's about to sentence you to judgment because you have not believed in his son, what are you going to say to him? He says, not enough proof, God. But that's what he would say to God. Not enough proof. Oh, there's plenty of proof. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Read Romans 1, and that becomes very apparent. That creation itself makes the glory of God known that everybody clearly perceives the eternal nature and divine qualities of God. They clearly perceive that they are a moral creature created by a moral God making moral choices for which they will be held accountable. And yet what do they do in spite of it? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is the trajectory of every one of our hearts apart from God's Holy Spirit. I love Paul's question, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of of God except the spirit of God. Paul's point is pretty simple. You are a finite human being. You have no capacity to understand things within the spiritual and invisible realm because you don't have the spirit of the invisible, all-knowing God. You have to possess his spirit in order to understand his truth. The, The spirit, of course, is the immaterial part of a person which is comprised of their knowledge and their personality and their desires. It can be kind of baffling when you read this text a little bit and we go, well, what is he actually saying? And I heard someone use this illustration that I think is helpful. And he says, you know, a medical person has the spirit that understands medical truths. A musician has a spirit to understand music. In my church, there are a plethora of engineers. (laughs) Because, of course, we're in Detroit. So we've got a lot of auto stuff going on there. And I know that if I were to call up one of those engineers to stand behind the piano, they would tremble because they would get up there and they would realize they don't have the spirit of a musician. They are the last person that you would want to call in, at least in our church, to come up. Of course, I don't have myself an engineering spirit, so if you asked me to solve one of their problems, I would be just as useless. 
Well, this is like our relationship to spiritual truths. None of us possess spiritual insight into the deep things of God until we receive the Spirit of God. It takes a certain spirit to understand the things of God. It takes a Holy Spirit. It takes the third person of the Trinity, God himself. And you know, I don't know about you, but this really has been one of the most comforting truths in my life. When you really get what Paul is saying, it changes everything. It changes your parenting. It changes your friendships. It it changes your family relationships. It cultivates patience. It cultivates love. It cultivates prayerful dependence on God because then you realize you're a lot less in control of people's spiritual state than you think you are. And if any great work of God is going to happen, it will have to happen through the Holy Spirit. Now, the scriptures are clear. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel. And nobody will trust in Christ apart from the declaring of that message. And yet, as we seek to persuade and as we seek to plead with people to trust in Jesus Christ, we must be humbled by the reality that God himself must do a work in them before they can embrace it, love it, accept it, and worship him. I mean, when's the last time that you asked yourself, why do I believe? No doubt many of you have friends that you have, you have seen grow up in the church and you've seen them hear the gospel. Perhaps you have even shared it with them. And they've known it for longer than you, perhaps even. But they have not trusted in Christ. And yet, you know yourself to be In all reality, when you compare your life, you really think to yourself, I'm a worse sinner than that person. Why am I saved and they're not? They had had so many better choices than I had. They had made so many better judgment calls than I had. And here I am and I'm saved and they're not. Why is that? Why do I love Jesus when people who heard the same message rejected it? Well, Paul mentioned you were chosen by God But we see here that it didn't stop at him choosing you. That was just the beginning. God also made sure that you heard the gospel. And when you heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit did something to you. He caused you to become born again. He baptized you into Jesus Christ. He, as theologians would talk about, they would say that he regenerated you. He gave you spiritual life. He made you alive when you were dead. And as a result, you understood the gospel and you believed in Jesus Of course, that's what we see in Ephesians 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. In verses 8 and 9, Paul then says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, there is... There's a logical necessity that we must first receive the Spirit of God and that God must illuminate our minds before we embrace who he is, that he has to do a reconstruction of the way that we think about things. 
And this becomes really clear when you look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You see, they received the spirit that they would understand. You see the connection? They received the spirit that they would understand the things given them by God. And listen, in our, in, in, from our standpoint, it all happens all at the same time. But there's a logical necessity that before you ever embrace who Christ is, that the Holy Spirit must reconfigure your thinking. And at the very moment he does that, you see the beauty of who he is, and you just want to bow down, and you just want to worship him, and you realize you are completely unworthy, and yet he died for you. The Spirit illumines us, enabling us to understand the Scriptures, persuading us that the Word is true. And if He didn't, we wouldn't turn. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Even the psalmist admits that as I look into your Word, I can't possibly comprehend what you are saying without the Spirit working. This is a truth from the Old Testament as well as the new. And of course, you look at Paul's prayer and you see the same yearning for God to give wisdom and insight, a, a complete and utter dependence on his imparting of that. He says that, that I pray that the Lord of Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul closes then with these last few verses. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Just repeating what he has already said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As we come to the end of our text, I'm sure that there's a question where you go, well, Cody, you've just told me that I am completely unable to just take this gospel and have it make sense in my own life and somebody else's life. I don't know if that leaves you in a place of desperation, but it should. And, and you think, well, well, but what, what if I really want Christ to be everything in my life? Well, guess what? It's evidence that God is already working in your life. Because at that moment when Christ becomes attractive, when you see your sin, when you see your debt before God, when you see the price that Christ has paid on your behalf and you desire to love him, he has already been illuminating your heart. Don't ignore that. Don't, don't ignore that work in your life. If you are the person who comes to church week after week and you've heard that good story, but you just continue to go out the doors unchanged, then this is my encouragement. Humble yourself before God. 
You're never going to unlock this message. You're never going to make it drive home in your life unless God does a work in you. And I promise you that if you cry out, he will answer. He will answer. I'll finish with a quote from J.I. Packer. (laughs) He says here, If we preferred that converts should be few and far between and did not care whether our proclaiming of Christ went home or not, there would be something wrong with us. This is especially an encouragement to those who are Christians. But it is not right when we take it on us to do more than God has given us to do. It is not right when we regard ourselves as responsible for securing converts and look to our own enterprise and techniques to accomplish what only God can accomplish. To do that is to intrude ourselves into the office of the Holy Ghost and to exalt ourselves as the agents of the new birth. Only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan and pray and work in his service can we avoid becoming guilty of this fault it really is quite simple we preach a crucified savior we have absolutely no reason to change or to alter or try to improve or to edit this message to make it more palatable as we declare this crucified savior god will perform his work As evidence of that, we're here. We're here. God's people gathering for worship. I pray that you are stirred as I am over this text, and I pray that as you find rest today, that you would draw near, that you would thank God for all that he has done in the gospel, that you would be refreshed, and that you would be motivated to then go from this place, taking this message to as many people as you can. Let's close in prayer.